You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Open up where we left off last Shabbat in the Gospel of Luke. Must have been praised a little too loud, losing my voice a little bit. I want to talk about Yeshua's miraculous resurrection today. A Jewish perspective. My friends, here's a reality. If Yeshua tarries, every one of us is facing the grave. Some people are so afraid of dying that they will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid the grave. There's a process called cryonics, in which you can have your body submerged in liquid nitrogen and frozen at negative 120 degrees. The introduction from the cryonics webpage, www.cryonics.org, promises, quote, the Cryonics Institute offers cryonics suspension services and information. As soon as possible after legal death, a member patient is prepared and cooled to a temperature where physical decay essentially stops and is then maintained indefinitely in cryostasis. When and if future medical technology allows, our member patients will be healed and revived and awakened to extended life in youthful good health. What a promise. Of course, it doesn't come cheap. (laughs) The Alcor Life Extension Foundation, www.alcor.org in Scottsdale, Arizona, will charge you a minimum of $200,000 to be frozen. It's time to take up another offering. (laughs) Well, if that's too much for you, then for only $80,000, this might be more in your range, you can... Choose neurosuspension in which your head is severed from your body and frozen in hopes that future medical science will connect your head to a newer, younger body. I've got the toll-free number for any of those that are interested in that today. I have a better idea. Submerge your life in Yeshua the Messiah. You don't have to worry about death and save yourself a ton of money. He is the end of your grave problem. And so in our text this morning, Slivat Yeshua, the crucifixion of Yeshua, we've been discussing the past few Shabbats, is given meaning only by his resurrection. My friends, resurrection is described here in these chapters as more than just a physical event, isn't it? It's not only solely that someone who was dead becomes alive again, for we... Witnessed early in our study that with Jairus' daughter in chapter 8. No, Jairus' daughter's return from the dead is not equivalent to Yeshua's resurrection from the dead. Resurrection was and is a reversal of all the forces of death, sin and disease that were set in motion in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, by Adam and Eve. No, Yeshua did experience death like all human beings experience it. He did not want to die more than any one of us does. And yet the Father took 
that horrible tragedy, Yeshua's death for something he didn't do, for the sin and guilt of others, and reversed it, raising him from the grave while simultaneously bringing about a change of the guard for all eternity. The victory was won here. And what remains is for that victory to be recognized by all creation, to be visibly manifest by the coming of the kingdom of God at the end of this age. And so the meaning of the resurrection of Yeshua is that what we perceive and live by through our eyes of faith stands one day by faith to be revealed to all of creation. And at that time, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord. And so from a human perspective, though, the execution stake from a human perspective was the ultimate defeat. And yet the father takes that and reverses it. In the end, love defeats evil. The gospels show that Yeshua died as a king, although those who confessed him as king were making fun of him and criticizing him. Yet the resurrection clearly demonstrates to all of the world, all of creation, that he is king. And not just an earthly king, but the king of all kings. <clears throat> By the way, this is all firmly rooted in Judaism, by the way. I want you to relax about that. The ancient hope of resurrection is a Jewish concept. Many don't realize that a core and a fundamental faith and belief of our people is the expectation of the Tchiat Hametim, the resurrection of the dead. You might recall that in the days of early sectarian Judaism, the Pelushim, the Pharisees, believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Tzadokim, the Sadducees, did not. And after our exile, the Pharisaic sect became the dominant branch of Judaism, and resurrection became an integral part of Orthodox Jewish theology. But how many of you know the Pharisees didn't invent the idea? The prophet Daniel foretold a future Resurrection, quote, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And so traditional Jewish prayers in the synagogue, like the Amidah prayer, have long since held this expectation of resurrection as well. Maimonides includes the resurrection of the dead in his final 13 principles of faith. My friends, the hope of resurrection is firmly grounded in Judaism from the beginning up until today. And so as I speak about the resurrection of Yeshua today, I want us to consider the miracle of it. Actually, when we consider the miraculous thread woven throughout the Jewish experience, the concept of resurrection really doesn't require more faith. It naturally weaves in. Miracles are integrated into our Jewish DNA. Each holiday that we observe celebrates Adonai performing miracles on our behalf. I love what the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, said. He said this, A Jew who does not believe in miracles is not a realist. Why would resurrection be the stone that God cannot lift? So let's begin where we left off, chapter 24. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week at daybreak, the women came to the tomb carrying the spices they had prepared. 
They found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Yeshua, looking for Yeshua among the dead. The central truth is that of this messianic faith is that Yeshua the Messiah died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. The tranquil spirit of Shabbat permeated the holy city of Jerusalem and appropriately Yeshua's body on Shabbat rested in the tomb on that day of rest. And in the midst of it all, the Talmudim, the disciples of Yeshua, were perplexed and they were downhearted. Their messianic faith and their ideals seemed suddenly dashed to the wind. It seems that virtually all of the Talmudim had accepted the apparent reality that now their leader was was dead and he's gone. Now notice here in these early verses the preeminence of women in this narrative. It shows a dramatic contrast that has appeared in the gospel accounts before this point. And that is that the greatest news in all of history is entrusted to the least likely candidates. I've mentioned this before about the status of women in Judaism in the first century CE. The women here, Miriam, the mother of Yaakov, Jacob, or James. Miriam from Magdala, Salome, and Joanna. They're coming here to the tomb as hopeless individuals with the purpose of finishing the process of preparing Yeshua's dead body for burial that we looked at last Shabbat. They don't come with the notion of finding a tomb that's empty and certainly with no notion of hearing that he's been raised from the dead. No, they're coming out of the tragedy. They're coming out of the grief in their hearts. The feeling is one of fear. The feeling is one of dismay. It's not one of faith. It's not one of emunah or trust. It's not one of tikvah. It's not one of hope. Even after they discover the empty tomb here in verse 3, they still are not filled with simcha, joy, and hope either. All that they can feel at this time in their lives is their sense of loss. This is the Yeshua who had befriended them. This is the Yeshua who gave them life. This is the Yeshua who had radically transformed their lives. And now he's gone. Now, although the Gospels don't explicitly say when Yeshua arose, as no one saw him leave the tomb as it could have taken place the prior evening after sunset, it was now Sunday morning and the women made their way there. They took the spices, they took the ointments, the aloes, the myrrh that they had prepared in keeping with Judean burial practice to anoint Yeshua's body there in the grave. In other words, they went, again, fully expecting Yeshua dead and buried in the tomb. In fact, they were asking themselves, in Mark's account, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And so when they arrived, they found, at the absence of the guards, the stone had been rolled away from the tomb and Yeshua's body was gone. Supposing that the servants of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had taken it either to bury Yeshua in a public cemetery reserved for convicted criminals or to place him in some other undisclosed location to keep his disciples from honoring him. They were looking for Yeshua among the dead and they didn't find him. My friends, many people today are still looking for Yeshua 
among the dead. I think of biblical scholars that who study the words of the Messiah and the gospel manuscripts who do not believe in Messiah's resurrection. I think of the archaeologists today, after nearly 2,000 years, still trying to find Yeshua's body, still trying to find Yeshua's bones in the tomb. They keep coming up empty. But these people have one thing in common, don't they? They are all looking for Yeshua among the dead. But if you're looking for Yeshua among the dead, you're not going to find him because he's not there. Now, each of the four Gospels tells the story of the encounters with the women quite differently. Which is not surprising, by the way, as probably no other story from the life of the Messiah would have been told and retold and retold and retold. And so each Gospel writer wrote according to the sources and the traditions that they had available to them. Let's go on. In verse 4, And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember what he told you when he was still in the Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be executed, and on the third day rise up. And they were reminded of his words. This is the good news of the resurrection. These were not, clearly, these were not ordinary men. They appeared out of nowhere, right? Their clothes were shining like lightning. The other gospel accounts confirm to us that indeed, yes, they were malachim, angels. These were messengers sent from Adonai with their clothing still burning bright with the kavod, the glory of heaven. You see, in the scriptures, any time an angel appeared in glory, one, of, one thing always took place. People fell down on their faces in fear. It was an instinctive reaction, right? The women at the tomb were no different here. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And so with the moving of the stone over the burial cave and the supernatural angelic appearance, it is little wonder that fear struck these witnesses. Now, we have to understand that the general belief in the resurrection of all people at the end of days has long been, again, a central doctrine of Judaism. Many scriptures testify of its promise. There have been some debates even among the rabbis about the possible resurrection of the Messiah himself. The classic passage of Isaiah 53, quote, he will see his offspring, was traditionally interpreted by the early rabbis as referring to Mashiach. In another fascinating passage that was tractate Sanhedrin 98a, in the Talmud, the rabbis state that the first Messiah, Mashiach ben Yosef, the Messiah's son of Joseph, will be killed in the last battle, but he will be resurrected by the second Messiah, Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, in tractate Sukkah 52a in the Talmud as well. Very Jewish. 
And the angels here reminded the women that Yeshua had told his disciples again and again what was going to happen to him when they got to Jerusalem. He told them ahead of time that he was going to suffer. He told them that he was going to be crucified. He told them that on the third day he would rise from the dead. And so Yeshua's arrest, arrest should not have been a surprising thing to them. And even his resurrection should not have been a surprise. Yeshua tells them all these things in advance, my friends. And yet somehow the meaning of these things escapes them. It was only after these things that happened that it says here they remembered his words. And then they put it all together. And so it is that these women showed up with spices at Yeshua's grave on Sunday morning looking for a dead man. And the angels rightly asked them, why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. My friends, this is the good news of the resurrection. Yeshua HaMashiach is no longer dead. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He does not belong in a tomb. He rose from the dead. He's alive and well, by the way, today. How many of you know he offers new life to us? The scriptures tell us that those who trust in Messiah were all going to share in his resurrection. The fear of death and judgment is taken away. That's good news any day. Yeshua is risen. Yeshua is alive. He just wasn't a great prophet or a teacher who lived and died nearly 2,000 years ago. Faith in a dead Messiah, how many of you know, that's no faith at all. No, to trust in Yeshua is to trust someone who is alive. And I don't need to tell you that his resurrection is linked to God's calendar either. In Matthew's gospel account, we read the following quote for just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for, what, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. My friends, no matter how you figure it, and I went to San Diego State as an undergrad with an accounting degree. I worked for many CPA firms. I'm a CPA messed up, but no matter how I figure it, I cannot get three days and three nights stay in from Friday night to Sunday morning. It can't happen. Tipping some sacred cows today. It cannot happen. So we need to understand Torah in order to understand what occurred. We learned last Shabbat that Yeshua's crucifixion took place on the day of preparation for the Passover. In Judaism, every Friday is a day of preparation. We try to get all the necessary work done. We try to get all the necessary shopping done on Friday so that we can rest on Shabbat. Likewise, there is also a day of preparation before each of the festival holy days. According to the United States Naval Observatory Nautical Almanac Office, the full moon, which occurs during Passover, every Passover, occurred on Wednesday at 10 p.m. in the year 30 CE, which most Bible scholars will tell you that they believe that's the year in which Yeshua was crucified. And so since each biblical day begins at sunset, Wednesday at 10 p.m. is really Thursday on the Jewish calendar. Therefore, Passover that year was on Thursday. 
The day of preparation then was on Wednesday, which happened to be the day on which Yeshua was crucified at three in the afternoon. He was laid in the grave just before sunset on Wednesday and then was resurrected on the feast of early first fruits, Svirata Omer, which began Saturday at sunset, which is three days and three nights later. Go with me to John's account, chapter 19. In verse 31, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was a festival Shabbat. You see, most Christians think that this particular, that this was that particular Friday. The Sabbath that is being referred to here is not a seventh day Shabbat, but a high holy day Shabbat. A high holy day Shabbat can occur on any day of the week. And so the disciples learned that Yeshua has been resurrected. He had been resurrected. They learned it on Sunday morning. This doesn't mean that he was resurrected at that time. It only means that this was the time that they learned of the resurrection. In all likelihood, Yeshua was resurrected shortly after sunset on the seventh day Shabbat, Saturday night, about the time of Havdalah, and also the beginning of the early first fruits festival for the barley harvest. We discuss every single spring about the traditional observance of this Sfirat HaOmer, this counting of the stalk and ear of grain, the barley, found in Torah, Leviticus 23. It was the first harvest of the spring. And as acknowledgement of God's provision for rain and for harvest, our people were to participate in this ceremony of the first grain of the barley harvest in the presence of Adonai. The harvest then would go and continue for seven full weeks as the other crops and the other fruits began to ripen, and as each fruit ripened, the first of each type would not be eaten, right? But instead, the farmer would tie a ribbon around the branch, signifying that these were bikurim, these were first fruits. A wave offering was then done, and only after that were they at liberty to make use of the harvest for themselves. And so we see that the traditional observance of this festival with the grain that had come from the earth being lifted up and waved for all to see was symbolic of the Messiah Yeshua's resurrection. Yeshua alluded to his resurrection in these terms and he prophesied his resurre resurrection to the exact day in John's gospel. Now, Rabbi Shaul, or Paul, in the New Covenant, also understands this vital link to this early first fruits day to the ministry of the Messiah. And as he taught the disciples there in Corinth about this doctrine of the resurrection, he makes an amazing connection. He brings it together for them concerning this biblical holy day. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead... The Bikurim, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also has come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Messiah will all be made alive. But each in, his own, in its own order, Messiah the Bikurim, the first fruits. You see, it's not merely the fact, my friends, that Yeshua was the first to bodily rise from the grave, but that by doing so, he is the direct fulfillment of this feast of early first fruits. I wish that churches would teach this. 
Maybe they'd, maybe they'd have a good Thursday service or a good Wednesday service. If you're, it can't be good. For, listen, Friday's good anyway, but not for that reason. Can't get three days of stay from Friday night to Sunday. It can't happen. I'll move on. <laughs> Love you online. Love you in the house. Let's look at some exhibits for a moment. Exhibit A, the empty tomb. One of the leading arguments against the historicity of the resurrection is the belief that all events that may seem supernatural actually have natural explanations. Historians have determined that several, there are several compelling facts that exist which strongly support the resurrection. The empty tomb is one of these compelling facts. For you see, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders would have jumped on any opportunity to demonstrate the illegitimacy of the resurrection of Yeshua. And one foolproof way to accomplish that would have been simply what? To produce his corpse once word of the resurrection began to spread. Any uprising would then have been immediately squelched if the corpse of Yeshua were displayed in a public area. Being that there was no corpse to produce... This has led to several major theories offered by skeptics to explain why the tomb of Yeshua was empty aside from him being resurrected. We need to understand this as apologists, as it were. We're not apologizing for the gospel. We are defending the good news of the Messiah. The body of Yeshua was stolen. This is one of the theories. The most circulated explanation as to why the tomb was empty is that the disciples, the Talmudim, stole the body of Yeshua. Even the Gospel of Matthew relays that this is a speculation as old as the resurrection. Chapter 28, the Roman guards had access to the tomb of Yeshua. Roman soldiers, by the way, as we've talked about, were extremely loyal. If not by choice, then out of self-preservation. Under Roman law, the only people that could be subjected to the torturous execution of a crucifixion were non-Roman criminals and disobedient Roman soldiers. And so upholding their post and guarding the tomb was literally, quite literally, a life or death situation. And these trained guards would have not been careless enough to fall asleep on watch or wander away. In addition, the stone was also sealed to prevent individuals from breaking in. Scholars have described the probable process of sealing the tomb. It's interesting, the Romans likely stretched a cord across the stone covering the entrance to the tomb and then placed a Roman seal on either end of the cord. And this Roman seal was held with high regard and the punishment inflicted upon someone who broke the seal would have been severe. The second major theory offered is that everyone looked for Yeshua in the wrong tomb. Now this explanation asserts that the women, and later the men, accidentally went to the wrong tomb because all the tombs looked similar, which happened to be empty. This hypothesis did not even come into existence until 1907. And although possible, this is highly unlikely, it would have us to believe, it would require us to believe that the women forgot within a matter of hours where their beloved rabbi was buried. And furthermore, if this 
was somehow the case. Those opposed to Yeshua and the Jewish and Roman leadership could have stopped any false rumors of resurrection by simply going to the correct tomb and producing the body. However, the dead body of Yeshua was never found by either his friends or his frenemies or his enemies. The third major theory offered is this. We've all heard this one. Yeshua was never killed during the crucifixion. Some accept that the tomb was empty, but they don't believe that Yeshua was ever truly dead. They believe Yeshua fell unconscious, unconscious or swooned from exhaustion and loss of blood and believe that after that he regained consciousness, such as believed today by current ultra-Orthodox Rabbi Daniel Azor in Israel. But everyone thought he was dead, even the Roman professionals, when in fact he was about to revive himself in the cool of the tomb. Now, the swoon theory has many problems to be seriously considered a theory. Could Yeshua really survive and revive himself after the horrible experience of Roman crucifixion? And you recall from last Shabbat that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea prepared the body of Yeshua for burial. Jewish custom required the body to be washed and to be bandaged tightly from the armpits to the ankles in strips of linen about a foot wide. The Gospel of John confirms that this custom was followed here. In addition, John's account in chapter 19 mentions that this anointing with aloes and myrrh that Nicodemus brought before the onset of Passover to the tomb was not just a, you know, just a light sprinkling of, of flakes, but about a hundred pounds of spices and resin mixed together, forming a thick, sticky compound like rubber, which hardened on the body. If Yeshua had awoken, he would have had to unwrap his tight whole body cast that had been in place, according to John's account, move the two-ton stone that sealed the entrance to the tomb, break the Roman seal, and then sneak out past a heavily guarded entrance. My friends, this would have been an impossible feat for anybody to accomplish, even if somebody were in a state of perfect health. Let's remember that even the skeptics of the resurrection confirm that Yeshua was severely beaten, tortured, left to die while nailed to an execution stake by his wrists and his ankles. To confirm his death, John also mentions that one of the centurions, you remember, plunged a spear into Yeshua's right side, likely that punctured a lung or at least a major organ. What came out? Blood and water. Blood and water. Today, the science of physiology teaches that when a human being dies, the blood in his or her body separates into serum, a transparent liquid like water and red blood cells. Without knowing it, John proved scientifically that Yeshua was indeed dead. In other words, the claim is illogical from many points of view. But ultimately, none of these explanations for the empty tomb hold up under detailed examination. Let's finish it up. Look at verse 12 with me. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to everyone else. 
Now it was Miriam from Magdala, Joanna, the Miriam of Jacob, and others together with them who were telling these things to the emissaries. But these words appeared to the emissaries as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up, Shimon Kepha got up, and ran to the tomb. Leaning in, he sees only the linen cloths. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Here's the conclusion from this, is how are we going to respond? How will we respond? We see several responses here. We see the women's response, right? What was their response? Believe and share. It's remarkable that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Although, again, Jewish women had many civil rights and protections within biblical culture, it was a commonly held doctrine that a woman was not an acceptable witness in many legal proceedings. This was deduced from the Torahic passage that speaks specifically of men who have a legal controversy. Therefore, it was concluded that witnesses must be men, not women or minors. This was not a judgment against women, my friends, but a recognition that they biblically had certain responsibilities. Now, one reason that the gender of the witnesses is striking to me is that a person seeking to write the strongest and most convincing account of such an important event would probably not relish inclusion of this detail. If, for example, that this account was fabricated, we probably would have read that Jewish rabbis attested to it. You know, yeshiva rabbis, Jewish elders would have certainly been reported here as the first witnesses. On the other hand, it confirms to us that the gospel accounts were not concerned about developing a biased account, but rather simply recording the actual facts as they went down. The fine details of this report thus contribute to its veracity. The angel exhorts the women here to go testify to the disciples that Yeshua had been raised from the dead. And then they're also to relay the message that the risen Messiah is going to the Galilee, where they're going to see him with their own eyes. Frightened they were, yes, but they're now filled with joy. The two Miriams are filled with joy, Salome and Joanna. They quickly depart to search for their messianic brothers. And the women come back from the tomb and they told all these things to the shilchim, the emissaries, and to everybody else there with them. And I'm telling you, they were frightened. They must have been confused as well. They didn't fully and certainly understand what had taken place. But there was one thing that they could do. They could share what they knew. They could share that Yeshua's body was no longer in the grave. They could share that the angel said that he had risen from the dead. The women believed and they shared their faith with others. My friends, likewise, we are not to keep the good news of the resurrection all to ourselves. That's our first response this morning. Believe and share. But there's also some other responses too. The emissary's initial response. What's their initial response? Don't believe and do nothing. That was their initial response. You see, the 11 had stayed the previous few nights at a home within the city. They feared arrest. They didn't want to be seen. Somebody, we don't know who, who was loyal to Yeshua, had taken them in, had provided them with a place to hide, and only a few people 
knew where they were at this time. They dared not say, they dared not stay at any one of their usual spots or any place that Judas from Cryote might suspect them at. In any event, the women's response was believe and share. The Shalachim's response was don't believe and do nothing. Now, I'm happy to report that the Shalachim later changed their minds about all of this, but their initial response mirrors the response of so many people in our world today. They don't believe in all this Yeshua stuff. It all seems like so much nonsense to them, and they do nothing. They dismiss the story of Yeshua outright. They continue to live their lives like there's nothing happening. Nothing happened that Sunday, my friends. Does it all today to you sound like nonsense? Think about it. Think about it. What if it were true? Don't you at least want it to be true? Of course you do. Anyone who's ever buried a loved one in the ground absolutely wishes that it were true. But the Shilachim's initial response to the report of Yeshua's resurrection was to reject it completely. April, if you'd come up. And then we have Shimon's response, Kepha's response, Peter's response. Check it out for yourselves. Are there only two options? Either believe that Yeshua rose from the dead or don't believe. At first, yes, it would seem so, only two options. But you know there's one other option. And I think we find this third option here illustrated by Peter's response. My friend, if you are not sure you're listening on this podcast, if you're not sure what to make of the resurrection of Yeshua, there's a third option that you can take. Rather than simply just rejecting it as nonsense, you can do what Peter did here. You can check it out for yourself. Simon Peter here did not leap to any conclusions. He, Yeshua's predictions about his rising must have swept through his brain. He said nothing. He runs out into the street, runs for the tomb. And upon arriving there, he turned off his brain. No, he examined the evidence, right? He saw the stone that was rolled away. He entered the empty tomb. He saw the strips of linen that contained the body once of Yeshua. Now lying there by themselves, these cloths were. The burial cloths consisted of winding sheets of a shroud around the body, accompanied by a head cloth. John's painstaking description of their undisturbed location, especially the separate position of the still folded head cloth, tells us. That Yeshua's body was miraculously loosed from the winding sheets or shroud. And the description of the head cloth does not suggest that it retained the shape which it had when Yeshua's head was inside it. But rather that someone having no further use for it had rolled it up and laid it tidily aside. Yet Peter still had his doubts. You might say, well, Rabbi Joel, that's all well. It's all good for Peter. He could run to the empty tomb and he could check it out. I can't do that today. No, you can't. But you can check out the facts for yourself. There are any number of good resources out there that will present to you the evidence for Yeshua's resurrection. One of the best that I've come across that we freely distribute is written by a Jewish attorney and former Jewish atheist, 
Jim Jacob, a lawyer's case for the resurrection. But if you're not able to believe this morning, if you'd stand with me today, don't just dismiss it as nonsense, however. Don't you owe it to yourself to at least investigate the claims of messianic faith. Be like Peter. Check it out yourself. If Yeshua did not rise from the dead, his claims and most of the claims of his followers are false. And he was simply a charismatic man and a false prophet. But if he did rise from the dead, then there was clearly a supernatural intervention in his life that deserves your further exploration. And so while Yeshua's atoning death is a vital part of our faith, my friends, we miss the point that if we recognize his resurrection, we must, was even more important. Through the resurrection of the Messiah, Adonai confirmed to an incredibly diverse and divided Jewish community in Jerusalem that the kingdom of God was indeed among them. My final question to us today is this, and I want you to think about this hard this week. If resurrection is real, what should we be preoccupied with on this side of eternity? A lot of things occupy our time. But if resurrection is real, if Yeshua rose from the dead, what is the bullseye for us to be focused on? On this side of eternity. That may transform your life. That may radically change your day around every day. Father God, we thank you and praise you. We want to be like Shimon Kepha. We want to examine the evidence. We want to be like the women. We want to believe. We want to share. We don't want to be like the initial response of the disciples. We want to be their later response. We want to be in, Lord God, by faith. Lord, there might be those, some in the house, there might be some listening to this message that the Lord has been wooing you into that place of examination. You've not accepted the Jewish Messiah yet. You're still investigating. I want to continue you on your journey. I want to encourage you to do the journey well. Examine all the evidence. Count the cost. Make the decision that so many millions upon millions have made after a thorough examination. We serve a risen Messiah. His name's Yeshua. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives as he said he would. The prophecies are all accelerating in these last days. Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands. We're seeing wars. Rumors of wars, ethnos against ethnos, earthquakes in diverse places, famines, pestilences, plagues. It's all moving forward prophetically to the point where Yeshua touches back down, inaugurates the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. And we're going to see it by faith. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. To see things that the prophets, to see things that Ezekiel saw in his spirit regarding these dry bones living again. Our people in Jerusalem are going to say one day and prophetically, they're going to look upon him whom they've pierced. They're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will have done the investigation. 
that is our message, not only to our Jewish people here in San Diego, but to the nations as well here in San Diego, to all flesh. Yeshua has come for the world to pay the price for all mankind. We have seen it, we believe it, and now we're sharing it. So, Lord, would you anoint every single conversation following this service as we go and do shopping this week, as we go to our jobs this week, as we do acts of kindness for our neighbors, as we share with our families. Lord, let us be like these women. Believe and share. We take on that assignment, Lord. It's an honor and a privilege to do that. And so as God told Moses to tell Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel, I want to release you with God's prayer over them. It's a biblical prayer. And it goes like this. Isadonai Panavelecha Viasemalecha Shalom. And may the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, and all of us who have believed and shared him said, Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>